Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. Happy New Year. Uh, my name is Chris. If we've not met, I'm the lead pastor here and just so glad to be in God's house with you today. Before we get into the text and the sermon, I just want to say right after this service in the chapel, which is right on the other side of the back wall of our sanctuary, we are going to be having a vestry information session. If you are uh, yourself interested in potentially serving on our vestry, if you know someone who is, uh, nomination windows are open for that among our membership. And a vestry is just the legal governing body of an Anglican church. Um, at Trinity, we say that we're pastorally led, staff implemented, because we have nearly 30 people on staff and vestry supported. Vestry lead the church in areas that are temporal, um, things like our budget and our facilities. They also help us in community and conversation around the leadership and caring for the mission and vision of our church. We have an amazing vestry at Trinity. It is uh, one of the joys of my month to gather with uh, 12 men and women uh, in our church. We meet on a Sunday and we pray and we talk about things and we explore ideas and we take care of the life of our church. If that is interesting to you, vestry members serve on a three-year term. We're going to be nominating a handful uh, this year and populating and onboarding them in February and March. If you're interested or you have some people that you think they would be so good at this, join us. We're just going to have a short meeting with a couple of vestry members, Nate Smith, our executive pastor, and myself right after the service. Uh, and there's going to be information on our website, all the things. But vestry season is upon us, and we hope that if you're interested, you'll come hang out with us, ask some questions, hear a little bit about what it, what it is all about. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark 1. Um, I, I love the, the Gospel of Mark. It's the shortest of the four Gospels. Um, and I kind of like that because I like getting through things sometimes, you know what I mean? But I love this about Mark. If you read Mark's gospel, you're going to hear lots of urgent language. He, he uses words like suddenly and phrases like, and then, and immediately. Um, it's almost like Mark is a breathless friend who's experienced something wonderful and is just trying to tell you about it. And I, I like that because I, I can be that breathless friend sometimes and I like to have those kinds of friends. And so we're going to be looking at Mark's introduction to the gospel. So it's like this is how Mark decides to jump into the story of Jesus. I think there is so much here, not just for us to look back and go, God, thank you for the way Jesus's ministry started. I also think there's so much here for us as we step into a new year. Because I know you people. You've already failed at your New Year's resolutions. And I know that because it's already happened to me in some areas. And so what happens by the time we get to the 7th of January, a lot of us are already feeling a little bummed. We're like, well, the weather's bad. The team I love's not in the national championship game. The Falcons are a disappointment again. Maybe more seriously, you've endured some complexity over the holidays. People you love weren't there because you've lost them. Maybe your relationships aren't where you want them to be. And we get to the seventh and some of us just limp into this. And when you limp into church on the 7th of January, it's easy to feel discouraged and to think like, what's 2024 going to be like? I think there's something here for us. And if you're in that place, you're not alone. A lot of us are there probably, if we're honest. So let's read and pray and then we'll jump in. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. 
John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed the one who is one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. Now that was the job of a slave. So John's saying, I'm not even worthy to do for this guy what a slave would do for his master. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately, there's one of those urgent words, immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beast and the angels waited on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to help us to see Jesus for who he is. And for those of us in this room who desire to be like Jesus, I pray that we would find in this account true words that would help us live our lives in 2024, right here, right now, before you with openness and honesty and hope. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So before we get into what the text says, I just want to say a little bit about John the baptizer. I will refer to him as John the baptizer. I don't think the Baptists should get him. I don't think Anglicans should get him or Methodists should get him. I wouldn't want to be called John the Methodist or John the Anglican or John the Catholic. So we're not going to let him be called John the Baptist. Um, And there's no offense there. I'm trying to be equal opportunity about this. Um, Baptizer meant John was one who baptized people. Uh, John transcends all of our denominations. So he's not, if you're a Baptist, you, you no more claiming this guy. He's like a big picture, big, big, big picture leader that came before Jesus. I actually think that John is best understood as the last of the Old Testament prophets. So he's really less like Paul and more like Elijah or Jeremiah. The dude ate bugs. He wore scratchy clothes. Like if your dad has one of those brushed camel fur jackets in the back of his closet, that's not what John was wearing. He wore scratchy clothes, he ate bugs, and he stuck his hand in holes and pulled honey out. Um, He was a mountain man, a wilderness man, a wild man. He would have made people feel uncomfortable at parties. (laughs) He was a firebrand. He was a truth teller. It's what got him killed. He called out the hypocrisy of a leader who had taken somebody else's wife as his own and it got his head chopped off for it. John the baptizer was an Old Testament prophet. He was the last of the forerunners pointing to Jesus. He was also Jesus's cousin. We don't know how well they knew one another, but we know that his mom and John's mom Jesus's mom and John's mom, Mary and Elizabeth, they knew one another. When Mary found out she was pregnant, And she was like simultaneously really excited about the work of God and probably also terrified about the scandal that would be hanging over her in her small town. She left that small town and she went, the Bible tells us, to the Judean countryside and she spent some 
period of time, an extended period of time with Mary. And all we know about that as it relates to John is that John somehow knew Jesus in utero. The Bible tells us that when Mary enters pregnant with Jesus, the home of Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John, that John leapt inside the womb. And I think about how hard it is sometimes to recognize the work of God. Like some of you are struggling right now to see the work of God in your life. And John somehow knew it when he was in the womb. There's a sensitivity there. He and Jesus were cousins of some kind. My daughter and, and son bought me Ancestry.com for Christmas, and I'm telling you the greatest gift I've ever received. It is so nerdy and so awesome. And it's like, I got cousins and great grandmothers and grandfathers. I mean, it's, it could all be a lie. I do not care. <laughs> I'm like, we're back into the 1400s. They're family, I think. <laughs> John and Jesus are family. They're related. And yet, you know, they didn't have Zoom and they didn't have FaceTime and they didn't have cars. And so I don't know how long or how often they saw one another. We don't know that. We don't know if when John pointed at Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God in John 1, we don't know if they'd like had a beer earlier that day or if they had not seen one another since they were little kids. What we do know, though, is that John gave his whole life to pointing to someone that could change life. So with that in mind, with that picture of who he was, that's how everybody would have seen him. Everyone in Jerusalem, in the big city, who's living busy lives, and I'm just gonna tell you, cities then, they're pretty similar to cities now. Like you get busy, you get distracted, you get hurried, you get worried. People were leaving that life to go out and see this guy. A guy that made them a little uncomfortable, a guy that was telling them something that they needed to hear, and they were curious about him. So with that reality in mind, let's, let's look at this text. Number one, people listen to John with intentionality. And I think this is really important for us because when you think about the ancient world, people were in that world of their daily grind, whether they were in the countryside or they were in Jerusalem, and they intentionally left the city for the Jerusalemites perspective, which would be similar for us, they left the busyness, they left the hurry, they left the crowds, they left the fullness, they left their to-do list, and they went out into the woods to see a guy who was standing in the middle of a river tell them things about their lives. John was telling them something that God wanted them to hear about their lives, and they had to make conscious choices in order to do it. I believe that for you and me, as we stand on the 7th of January, early in a year, if we want to hear the kinds of things that God would say to us about the ordering of our lives, we must learn how to listen with intentionality. We actually have to make choices about our rhythms. And I am not telling you that you have to go to Israel. I actually would not recommend that right now. It's, a, it's hard over there. I'm, I'm also not telling you you have to go to Colorado. I mean, if you can, you should. I'm not even saying you have to go on a retreat to the North Georgia mountains or to become a monk or to quit your job. I'm just saying we've got to figure out ways to step out of the flow of life that has a way of taking on a life of its own and intentionally say, God, I want to learn how to listen with intentionality. That has to manifest in our calendars or it will not happen. 
Like a lot of us have these ideas that we never get around to. I'm, I'm going to exercise someday. I'm going to start flossing one day. I'm going to go get that checkup one day. I'm going to tend to that relationship. I'm going to tend to my soul. I'm going to deal with that addiction. A lot of us are in one day, someday territory. But what the people in Jerusalem and the surrounding countryside did was they said, like, on this day, I'm going to make a conscious choice to do something that will help me potentially hear something that will give life to my life. And so if you're limping into this space, if you're limping into 2024, now is an opportunity to ask the question, what does it look like for me to listen with intentionality? We have to position our lives in such a way that we have a shot at hearing something different from the same old, same old, same old. So people actually made choices. You and me, we have an opportunity. I would argue there's an invitation for us to make choices around what it looks like to listen with intentionality, to enter into the quote unquote wilderness. So this wilderness of people going out to see John standing in a river was different than the wilderness Jesus entered into at the end. We're gonna talk about that in a minute. This was just to enter into a place that was less stimulating. And for some of us, it might simply mean turning your radio off on the way to work. Like it could be that simple, engaging some quiet. I would argue that we need to have rhythms of listening. So when they came out to listen, John said, prepare the way of your life through repentance. That's the second movement in this passage. That was John's message. You've heard me say this before. John's message over and over and over again was prepare the way of the Lord. And the image that John and I think the Holy Spirit want us to have with John's message is of uh, essentially looking out your home and looking at the driveway and seeing how broken down it is, how overgrown it is, whether there's bramble and briar and boulder or places of brokenness. John is saying, prepare the way of the Lord. And the image that we hold with John is a great image for January. The image is somebody important wants to get to me, but my driveway, the landscape of my life might be cluttered or there may be brokenness there. And I have an opportunity to prepare so that that very important person who wants to get to me can actually gain access to me with ease. And the message of John was look at your driveway, name what is real in terms of brokenness, specifically sin, and begin to engage a kind of road construction project. That's what John was saying over and over and over again. The word repentance comes from a word in the language of the Bible that just says rethink or think about your thinking. What I believe we're meant to do if we're to be faithful with this is occasionally step back from our life and ask real questions about what's actually going on there. What does your driveway look like? Metaphorically, what does it look like? I mean, your actual driveway might have some parallel uh, to, to, to your spiritual driveway. I don't know. Mine certainly has some crumbles uh, around the edges. What does your life look like? 
if sin is to miss the mark, repentance is to rethink or to think about your thinking. When was the last time you stopped to think about your thinking? Our thinking goes on kind of autopilot sometimes. To repent is to just step back and go, what, what is this? And one thing I will tell you, and this is what I've learned in my own life, if I wanna look at the state of my driveway as it relates to God, it's really helpful sometimes to also then look at the state of my intimate relationships. Because our human relationships oftentimes mirror our God relationships. So if people have a hard time getting to you, if you find that you're not present in the moment or that there are patterns of addiction and brokenness that are causing your intimate relationships with, with your lover, with a family member, with a close friend um, to be complicated, that's oftentimes also going to be an impediment. See, sin separates us from God. It also separates us from other people. Places where we miss places where we're not living into God's best. What John kept saying was, look at your life and give it an honest assessment and name the things that are not as they ought to be because God has something he wants to say. He wants to do something and he invites our partnership with him. I think the first step of our partnership as we stand at the threshold of a new year is to look at our lives and look at our relationships and look at the landscape and say, there's, there's some work to be done here. Jesus is keenly interested in that work. So where are you stuck? Where are you sleepy? You know, life has a way of putting us to sleep. Some of us go on autopilot in our marriages or our friendships and our careers and our taking care of our bodies. We just kind of go to sleep and keep going through the motions and you wake up one day and you think, gosh, this isn't what I want. The picture I have of John is that he's standing in the middle of a muddy river and he's speaking to a bunch of people on one side and he's saying, come through the river, come through. That was the way the church used to do it. Uh, that's why we bought that giant, if you've been to one of our baptisms, we bought like a monstrosity of a baptismal pool because we wanted people to enter into one side, get baptized and then exit out the other side. Think about movement. When the Jews left Egypt, there was a body of water between slavery and freedom, and they had to move through it. When the Jews ended their wilderness wandering, there was a body of water, a river at flood stages, and they had to move through it to go to promise. When we experience and see Jesus in his baptism, there's this invitation that God is giving through a guy like John that says, get moving. You can get unstuck. And so if you feel stuck, what an opportunity to see God move us through. The third thing we see in this passage is that John kept pointing to Jesus. John was amazing. John was compelling. John was so impressive that people were like, is this, is this the savior? And, and John kept saying over and over again, it's not me. He kept pointing to Jesus. Here, here's, after me will come one more powerful than I. The thongs of these sandals, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. He says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Um, one, one translation says this essentially, John stands before people and says, I can plunge you in water. Jesus will plunge you in the Holy Spirit. The way we engage baptism in the church is, um, it's, it's too tame, but we can't make it what it's supposed to be. Otherwise it would get really weird. Uh, to be baptized is, is to, to be completely plunged and immersed. Like 
like a kind of like hold you under and count to 10 kind of situation. It would get weird. But the picture of John's baptism and then him pointing to Jesus was that Jesus alone can soak us to the bone in the work of the Holy Spirit in such a way that our lives take on a new kind of character. If you look out in our hallways, we have finally been able to put our five core commitments on the wall. Um, The very first one is to experience the love of God and life in the Holy Spirit. There's this idea of being soaked to the bone by the work of the Spirit, that that's what Jesus was pointing to at the very beginning of, of his ministry. And that leads us to the fourth thing, the baptism of Jesus. Here's what I want you to hear. When Jesus is baptized, this is what God, his father says over him. You are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. Most of us live our lives longing to hear words like that from the father. And many of our dads couldn't quite get that done because they didn't receive it themselves. Many of our parents you know, it's like brokenness and we work our hardest and we, we transmit brokenness. That's what people do. So I want to ask some questions here and this is not a trick question. I'm not going to try to trick you. At the time that God spoke those words over, over his son, Jesus, how many sermons had Jesus preached that we know about for sure? Zero. Uh, how many miracles had he performed? Zero. How many times had he walked on water? Not, not at all that we know about. How many times had he fed the 5,000 or the 10,000 or the, none, not at all. People in the early church became so uncomfortable with this that they made up stories about Jesus doing crazy things when he was a little kid. The point of the baptism of Jesus is that the father, your father, my father, that the father spoke words of affirmation and acceptance over Jesus before he did anything. Here's the way our world works. Our world tells us, do important things. Then you will feel important. Then maintain how important you are and one day you'll feel accepted. Do important things. You'll feel like you're important. Maintain your reputation and one day you'll feel accepted. Trevor Hudson calls this the cycle of works. When you look at Jesus, and I will tell you that Jesus wants you to be like him. The father wants us to be like him in this regard. He began with acceptance before he did anything. Then he was sustained through spiritual practices. That yielded a sense of significance which resulted in fruit bearing or achievement, not the other way around. When we live our lives thinking, I've got to do important things in order to one day feel loved, we come into spaces like this, cynical, exhausted, frustrated. But when we look at Jesus, Jesus was spoken over at his baptism before he did anything, you are my beloved. Can you hear God speak over you? that you're his beloved. In the midst of your sin, you're his beloved. In the midst of all the false starts, you're his beloved. He loves you not because of what you do. He loves you because he's God and you're his child. You're an image bearing child of his. That which was true for Jesus is also and must also be true for us. 
We begin with our belovedness. The reason why that's core commitment number one is that we can't do anything until we know that we are loved by God and full of life in the spirit. Speaking of life in the spirit, the next thing we see in this passage is that heaven opens up. God speaks those words of affirmation and a dove lands on Jesus. And I think any astute reader of the Bible uh, at the time of this when they saw that dove land on Jesus, their minds would have gone to the story of Noah and the ark. And if you're familiar with the story of Noah and the ark, remember there was a flood and it was real bad and they were in a boat for a really long time. And then at the end, Noah was like, things look a little better out there. Like the rain has stopped, the water levels seem to be getting lower. So what does he do? He takes a dove and he flies a dove and the first thing that happens is the dove just flies and flies and flies and it doesn't land anywhere and it comes back and he's like it's not time yet flood's still too bad out there and then he waits a week so he has to have patience he waits a week and then he sends the dove out again and this time it flies around and it comes back with a branch in its mouth which proved to Noah that the flood of sin and brokenness had receded enough that real land, probably the tip of a mountain, had emerged. And then he waits another week and he puts it out there and this time it doesn't go home. It finds home. It doesn't come back. When the dove lands on Jesus, who speaks to us of the person and work of the Spirit, the dove lands on the second mountain. The first mountain said this. The flood's finished, the, 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 the reign of death and destruction and terror, that's coming to an end. When the dove lands on Jesus, it's the second flood of brokenness and lostness begins to recede and the spirit lands on Jesus, that mountain of a man, the savior, the son of God. And there's something so powerful about the way the Holy Spirit wants to work. The Holy Spirit speaks over us that we're not alone. And this leads to the last thing. We're told Jesus immediately enters the wilderness and is tempted for 40 days. And here's a little biblical shorthand. When you see the number 40 in the Bible, whether it's years or days, it just means like a really long time. It's like a Jewish way of saying he was out there a while. Jesus goes into the woods, but he's not alone. Do you see this? wilderness, the, the tough kind of wilderness is a non-negotiable. All of us enter into the wilderness as we live our lives. You may be in a wilderness season right now. The belovedness of God and the work of the spirit accompany us into the darkest places of life. This is where the rubber meets the road. There's no scenario where we're not gonna be in hard spaces or experience hard things or feel alone. But Jesus was not alone. And when you enter into wilderness places, you are not alone if you belong to the Lord. So I believe as we step into a new year, as we um, look at the future, as we have our hopes and we hold our disappointments, I believe that this is an amazing opportunity for us to say, what would it look like for me to face 2024 knowing that I am loved and that I am not alone? But here's what I know. Wilderness seasons are revealers. A few years ago when I went through an extended wilderness period and many of you who are a part of this church, you saw me go away for four months and you saw me come back and, um, and I've walked and will for the rest of my life, I will walk with a limp 
because of that season of my life. I'll, I'll never probably walk like I did before and I'm really growing increasingly grateful for that because I really like who God is making me to be in this season. Here's what I learned. The wilderness revealed all kinds of junk in me. Will you step back and look at your driveway and see what it is that's there that God wants to put his finger on and begin to work healing? Reconciliation, it's not too late for any one of us in this room to begin to look at our lives and invite the work of the Spirit. So I want to leave you with two questions. And I would encourage you to take a picture of these, um, the next slide, if you can put it up there. Uh, because I actually know in my heart, I'm, I'm more and more positioning these questions because I know you can't do it in two minutes. You can't answer these questions. So I would love for all of us to start journaling. I'm just going to be more and more insistent about that. I think that reflecting and journaling is a way to remember. It's a way to be intentional. And maybe this week, if you would be willing to pick that up or you're doing it, this would be a good, a good piece of track to run on. What have desert and wilderness seasons, what have they revealed in you? Like, it would just be good to say, like, what comes up in those seasons? I come, I'm more enmeshed. So when I'm in the desert, I feel really anxious. That's what I first experienced was a desire for external reassurance. And, and I just needed somebody to tell me I was going to be okay. And it, it helped me realize I'm not good at solitude. So that was something I put before God and asked for his help on. You may be the opposite. You may want to run into the desert and not connect. There's a different invitation for you. What does the desert stir up in you? And then what does it look like for you to be attended to by God when you enter into the desert? I think these are fundamental questions that aren't easy to answer. But we're going to spend about two minutes holding these questions just in quiet here. And then I would invite you to think more deeply and maybe write some stuff down uh, as you walk through your week. Let's be still and then we'll come to the communion table.